You're listening to the Deconstructing Success podcast. I am your host, Tima Alhaj. Have you ever wondered what happens behind closed doors when it comes to real success? I know I have, and this is exactly why this show was created. I have an insatiable desire when it comes to learning from the best in the world and an obsession with how successful people think, operate, and execute. I want to know what sets these people apart from the average person. Each week, my focus is to have intimate conversations with successful CEOs, founders, athletes, experts, and leaders that have created extraordinary levels of success in their own lives. My goal is to ask the right questions whilst deconstructing their success process, their mindset, their life philosophy, and how they continue to achieve success. I want this information to be actionable for my listeners so you can achieve the success you desire and create your dream life. If you are hungry to grow and evolve to your full potential, then continue listening and subscribe as I deconstruct success from some of the greatest minds and the most inspirational individuals in the world. Welcome to episode seven of the Deconstructing Success podcast. This week, I interview Mark Randolph, who is a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur and is also the co-founder of Netflix. Mark is an advisor, investor, speaker, and best-selling author of That Will Never Work. When I was preparing for my interview with Mark, I did quite a lot of research, as well as read his book, of course. And amongst all of this, I kept thinking to myself, wow, what a time it would have been for Mark to be a part of one of the most revolutionary, game-changing technology in our history. In today's interview, we discuss all of the details of how Netflix came to life, some of Mark's previous failed business attempts, some business ideas that never came to life and why they never did, the importance of family and work-life balance, leading a team successfully, and we of course discuss how the concept of Netflix came about, how he and his business partner, Reed, planted the seed, bring it to life, faced the challenges whilst disrupting the industry and be one of the very few pioneers with a great expedition, as well as creating a permanent shift in the world with the dawn of the internet era. You will love this episode. Welcome to my show. I'm so excited. I have the incredible Mark Randolph here today, the writer of That Will Never Work and the co-founder of Netflix. One of my takeaways after reading Mark's book is that we live in a prosperous time. And I will definitely explain what I mean by that because we literally can be whoever we want to be, create any business that we want without any limitations. The only limitation that we have is our own procrastination and our own fears. And again, once I interview Mark, you'll know exactly what I'm referring to here. So thank you so much, Mark. I'm so, so honored that you're on the show today. I'm so excited for many, many reasons. One, because entrepreneurship is such an in thing right now. And I see you as a real business person that has lived through so many different parts of where the world has changed. And you were just on the verge of really just 
literally you've, you've made, you are part of history and in terms of the internet era and how it's just really just basically shifted the way we live in this world and what an incredible feeling to be a part of something in that magnitude. So it's such an honour to be on the couch with you today and just to really just spend some quality time with you. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. My and it is an amazing time, isn't it? It is. We, we really are very, very lucky. And after reading your book, which was incredibly written, by the way, I actually felt as though I was reading a movie. I felt like I was a fly in the wall in so many of those moments that you were sharing in, in, in extreme detail. And it was a bit of a mini crash course on how to start a business and how to create an idea and really bring that to life. So you really did talk through the challenges and again, like the finer details from how you set up your website and and how you decided to set up, you know, what menus and, and why and all, it was just incredible. So thank you for going into that much detail first. I think people are always surprised that I actually know how to write. <laughs> it's like, they think, oh, business person, you know, good yeah. with numbers, but yeah. I love writing. And it, it, was, it was, it's a great story. It really is um, a good There's great story. characters. There's great plot twists. There's tension. There's drama. I mean, that's it's the whole nature of starting something. Um, and trying to bring in all the things that are happening at home, too. Because a lot of people, this whole glorification, as you mentioned, about uh, entrepreneurship makes it very single-minded. It's all about the pitching and the, the being at the company. But so much of it is the other parts of it, too. It's like, how do you keep your relationships together? And how do you uh, have time for yourself? And Absolutely. We'll definitely touch on that because that was one of the things that I really felt that there was a common theme throughout the book that although you had this incredible idea and you just wanted to make this business a success, you really wanted to be a successful husband, a successful father. You didn't want to miss out on those moments with your children as well. And it's such an important point to make because I, I have a nine-year-old, so I run my own business. <laughs> right. And uh, and for me, the same thing, you know, they grow so quickly and you want to show them that you can do anything and be everything. But at the same time, those moments that you live through, that, that you never relive those moments again. So I love that you really try to infuse that culture within your organization as well. So we'll definitely touch on those things. But I'm all set for it. It's very exciting. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. It seems like you just had such a great foundation in terms of support from your family, which I really feel has really helped you really be the, be the man that you are today. Yeah, you know, I mean, so many entrepreneurs grow up with the chip on their shoulder or they grow up and feeling they have to prove something. And I'm, I think, an outlier in that regard that I didn't. I, I, things were pretty... I want to say easy, of course, but I mean, I wasn't struggling. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, I kind of grew up in a family that encouraged us to try anything. Uh, and more, more than that, you know, it was a, a place where if someone said no, you were almost encouraged to try and find a way around that, mm -hmm. uh, to realize that these barriers are just um, words um, and, and also encourage you to do crazy things. I, I'm a big outdoors person. And so much of that came from each time I got to a fork in the road, my father, in this case, would encourage me to keep on going even more. Mm -hmm. So you'd come home and say, I'm going caving or something crazy. And then rather than being one of those families where they go, what are you, crazy? How, <laughs> what, you get yourself killed. They would go, well, that sounds fantastic. And, yeah. and then you go, oh, well, maybe it is fantastic. And any fear you might have had is it replaced by excitement. Absolutely. And I feel that that 
that way of dealing with those situations, you know, those skills that you learned at such a young age, you really transferred that into, you know, the world of the business world. And, uh, and I found that that was such a strong point that really came across after reading your story as well. And uh, obviously the closeness that you have with your family as well, which is really, really beautiful. So I'd love to really get to know a little bit more about, you know, when you were younger, like what did you imagine yourself doing growing up? <laughs> well, I had no idea. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up until I was probably in my 30s. So it isn't like all of a sudden it dawned on me when I was uh, 11 or something that I was going to be an entrepreneur. And that's partly because there was no such thing as an entrepreneur. I mean, there, of course, were people starting businesses, but no one talked about it. It wasn't a, a thing you could study at the university and it wasn't something you could get a degree in. It was just this thing. So I never dreamed of that growing up. Uh, there was one thing, which is that my father had actually invented something. He had a patent for a device. Uh, and I thought that was the coolest thing. I mean, he actually, we'd pull it out. It was just, you know, four or five page, extremely complicated document, which I couldn't make any sense of. But the fact that he'd invented something and gotten a patent for it. And I said to myself, I would love to invent something. Mm. And I had little notebooks where every time I had an idea, I'd write it all out. And so I guess in one way, that was a dream, which was to invent something. Yeah. And then actually, interestingly enough, I actually did, Netflix actually did apply for patents. So I actually did get a patent eventually. You finally got, you got your I patent. Thought, yeah. yeah, which I think in some ways was a dream come true. Yeah. The other stuff I had never, never dreamed about. It's just, just the magnitude of just, of it all. Does it ever occur to you that, and the reality of the fact that you were a part of all of this? No, it's still unbelievable, really. Mm. I mean, certainly even jumping fast forward, I mean, I started Netflix when I was 38. Mm. But even then, the last thing from your mind is the scale that Netflix has become uh, yeah. now. It is just so rare and so unusual. Mm. I mean, there's only a handful of companies that achieve the size and scale that Netflix did. Absolutely. And to think that that might be something that you'll achieve when you're starting something and your mm -hmm. soul... Um, focus, just getting over that next that next barrier. Yes. So no, never in a million years did I dream that uh, Netflix would be what it is, mm. um, that I'd be where I am. And un, un, unthinkable almost. Well, it is. I mean, even I, even though I wasn't a part of the story, I still get goosebumps even thinking about just, just the magnitude <laughs> of it all. It's really incredible. And one of the things that I really enjoyed reading in the book as well were your car trips with Reed and yeah. how you would have these mini brainstorm sessions and the amount of times that he would just maybe shut down an idea that you had. And you're very creative, like you and very, very persistent. And I one of the things that I took away was that you were really wanting to create a story. Like you wanted to have that story that you could eventually share one day. You know, the story of not just success financially, but the story of something where you actually contributed in a, in a really large way. You know, like a story like Amazon or, or one of those other companies. So well, you're attributing things to me that probably aren't really there. I mean, I um, it's the, the entrepreneurship, at least for me, is a compulsion. I would do it no matter what was happening. And, and which in some ways is the positive thing. I mean, just jumping back for a moment to something you said in the introduction, which is about how entrepreneurship has become this thing now. I actually think it's kind of a bad thing that it's become glorified. 
the way it has. Because I think it sets people up to do it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Are they doing it because they want to achieve some huge company? It's as unrealistic as someone saying, I want to be an actor or an actress because I want to be famous. Mm-hmm. It's never going to happen. I mean, it will happen to one in a hundred thousand people, mm-hmm. one in a million people. But the same thing for an entrepreneur. The thing that was for me, the compulsion was I just like taking a puzzle and solving it. I like seeing an idea and I can't help myself. It's like walking by a box of puppies on the sidewalk. You can't just leave it there. You've got to pick it up and find a home for it. Mm-hmm. And ideas were like that for me. That's so true. this is more, more driven in that sense than it is to try and actually create the end product. Absolutely. And that was very, very loud and clear reading your story as well. And uh, and I'm glad that you brought this up because you are right with entrepreneurship at the moment. It is such a, I guess, on-trend thing or the thing to do. And it is very glamorized and very glorified. But the reality is it's not like that on a daily basis. No. And even reading your story, you never really referred to the money side of things in terms of the the success, in terms of what comes from all of that hard work. I felt that it was very clear that you were really focused on the people, you were focused on the problem solving, and just really focused on continuing to be creative. Um, and I and I feel like you were really ahead of ahead of the game. You know, you were almost ahead of your time for the time that Netflix was around, especially like even just creating a certain type of culture in an organisation. All of those things were really unheard of at the time. So where did the, where does that come from? Like, is that something just within you, or where does all yeah, of that come from? Yeah, I have to say it's. I mean, it's a huge amount of luck that these things are accumulations of your life experience. I mean, the culture part, backing up, you know, I I guess I mentioned Netflix is my sixth company and I started it when I was 38. And so I'd worked at a lot of places and I'd had a lot of chances to try different things. And I'd actually come off not too, how do I say that? Not too much longer before, there you go, that's it. (laughs) Uh, not too long before, had actually had a terrible cultural experience where I was working at a company which was completely dysfunctional. And so you come in not saying, I'm going to create a culture. You basically just say, this is how I want to work. This is how I want to treat people. I want people to really enjoy coming to work. But again, it's not a business plan-y thing where what are the ingredients to build 150 million subscribers? You don't think that way. You just go, I want to come to work and enjoy being at work. I want to have a good time with the people that are there. I want to have balance in my life. I want to have fun. And I want to be effective. And Mm -hmm. all those things, you take all the little things you've learned from all your other jobs and just be. You know, because culture, just speaking about culture for a second, is not what you say. And it's not what you write down or carve into the cornerstone of your building. It's how you act. Mm-hmm. And everyone models off of that. And, you know, as a, as a parent, you know that your do- daughter, is it yes. you know that your daughter watches what you do mm-hmm. way more carefully mm-hmm. than what you say to do. Mm-hmm. And they quickly realize, oh, everyone's always saying, don't do this, don't do that. And then they watch their parents do it. Yeah. And it's the same thing in a company. Absolutely. Um, culture springs from how the founders behave. Mm-hmm. And so I just behaved in the way that I wanted to treat people and wanted them to treat me and it worked 
We make it sound so simple. It is <laughs> simple. Yes, but not a lot of companies do that. And I think it's because it's come from an intentional place of, like you said, well, what, how would I want to be treated? Where would, how would I want to work? What environment? How does that look like? And it really was still very much ahead of its time. And, and I feel that that really led the way for a lot of other organisations to really make changes you know, as well. That's why I wrote the book was not to have this be a to-do book or a how-to book. Mm. Here's how you build a culture. I wanted people to see how you build a culture, not tell them how to do it. Mm -hmm. And just see, this is the way we did it. Um, and everyone will do it differently, but mm -hmm. it, has to, it has to arise organically from the way the founders act and how they, how they treat each other. Yeah. And it is, I will keep saying it, it is easy. If because being yourself, huh, I mean, being yourself isn't that easy, <laughs> but fundamentally it's being yourself. Okay. And if if you try and artificially come in and say I'm going to be this type of person, that doesn't work. If you're going to come in and say I'm going to, here's what I want my company to look like and feel like, but it's not you. Yeah, that's hard. And you're right. I think a lot of people model on what they think it should be. They go, Wow, I hear that entrepreneurs work 20 hours a day. So I guess I should be working 20 hours a day or I should be having everyone else work mm. 20 hours a day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm kind of rambling, but I, got, um, I work, I do a lot of mentoring now. And I spent so much time once with a founder who was a business side, it was a, a co-founder team, business side and an engineering side. And he just could not figure out the engineer's behavior. He goes, this guy rolls in at 11 o'clock you know, and then he goes out and gets a massage in the middle of the afternoon. And I mean, all this, he's going, I don't know how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, in this case, it's really, is he being productive? He probably comes back, he probably works all night. He probably, you know, he, he has a rhythm and you just have to let that go mm -hmm. and judge it on the results, not on the modeling it to, has to be a way you think it should be. That's really good advice. And for those that don't really know the Netflix story, mm -hmm. where did the idea come from and how did it come about? You know, like most things, um, they come from circumstances you didn't necessarily plan for. And uh, in this case, a company that I started with two friends was being acquired. We went to work at a big company uh, that acquired us. And that company was um, started and being run by a guy named Reed Hastings. Um, and Reed lived in the same town I did. And so Reed and I began carpooling to work every day. And we became friends that way. And we did that for about nine months. And then the company, Reed's company, where I was working, became was acquired as well. And then the circumstance we didn't plan for is that both of us um, were being, as they euphemistically put it, made redundant. So we were being sacked. But because these were two big public companies, that takes about six months. So both of us had to come to work every day for six months getting paid, options are vesting, get to stay in our offices, but had almost nothing to do. And I said, that's a great thing that I'm gonna use that time to start my next company. And Reed was going to not start another company, but go off and become an educational philanthropist, go back to school, get a higher degree in education. But he wanted to keep a hand in, and so he said he would fund me. And we came up with an idea together, and then I'd start it and run it. So that's the preamble. But we needed the idea. And this was not, both of us were deeply passionate about movies. In fact, both of us had completely 
pedestrian, <laughs> ordinary tastes in movies. We watched whatever was on the new release shelf and didn't spend hours dissecting who the directors were or anything like that. Instead, we began casting about for an idea um, that we thought would be interesting, viable, that might create a new opportunity. Um, and a lot of the ideas, we would brainstorm back and forth on these commutes because we had an hour in the car. And so we would just go back and forth about different problems we'd seen or opportunities or new technologies. And like the ideas were pretty out there for the time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them famously was uh, personalized shampoo, where you send in a lock of your hair. We analyze it, oh, okay. formulate a shampoo for you, and then you subscribe to that. Mm-hmm. Which I still think I is think a great that's a idea. Good, I'd, I'd buy something like that. <laughs> yeah. That was one. The other one was personalized dog, well, customized dog food. Mm-hmm. So we formulated exactly for your pet and also subscription. So there's these themes here, which was personalization, subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fundamental premise for me was it had to involve selling something on the internet. And my first 20 years of my career, I was a direct marketing person. I was a junk mail person. So I, and I, a bunch of my startups, two of my startups were magazines. So magazine subscriptions. Two of them were mail order companies. So I had this, this sense of personalization that I, and subscription that I thought were compelling. So when the internet came along, I go, that is the, that is the place. So one of the other ideas was video rental by mail which um, was compelling because video is an $8 billion category. And the entrenched player, a blockbuster, had a customer experience that we felt left a lot of room to improve upon, to put it mildly. But back then, video was on those VHS cassettes mm-hmm. that you probably uh, grew up with. Yeah. And it was too heavy and they're too expensive and they were fragile. And so that was a no a no-go, got discarded along with the dog food and the shampoo. And then the lucky break was that just a few months later, there was a new technology called the DVD, which was being test marketed in San Francisco as one of the cities it was being test marketed in. And we immediately said, wow, that's kind of interesting because they're small and they're thin and they're light. This might be an interesting way to dust off that old problem. And then, then here is the compelling thing is that as entrepreneurs, rather than overthinking it and rather than rushing to the office and writing up a business plan or working on our pitch deck, we just said, let's just validate the very first premise of this whole idea. And we turned the car around and went back to Santa Cruz where we lived. And of course you couldn't buy a DVD, there weren't any. So we bought a used music CD, which we thought would be a good proxy and then put it in a little envelope and mailed it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. And it got to his house the next day, less than 24 hours for the price of a stamp. And that was kind of the moment where uh, we realized it might work. And one of the things that you mentioned is that, you know, you weren't both, you know, movie or film fanatics or big movie lovers. The fact that you, because there is this misconception where you have to be so passionate about what you do, you have to love what you do, which is true to some degree. 
but you weren't searching out to look for that passion in terms of what am I really passionate about and then sort of convert that into a business. But I did love what I was doing. Yes. I loved what I was doing. I just didn't love necessarily movies. Yeah, that's right. But I love the process of how do you start a new company? How yeah. do you solve all these problems? Here's a really weird problem. Yeah. We're going to do video rental by mail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes no sense. There's 9,000 Blockbuster stores. There's one, you can throw a rock and hit a Blockbuster store from almost yeah. everyone's house, in the, at least in the United States at the time. Yeah. How is that going to work? You can just rush down there and get a movie in 20 minutes. Why would I possibly want to wait two days for four days if I live on the East Coast of the United States to get to me? And that is what I was passionate about. Is trying to solve solve that yeah. and really try and make that work. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. I mean, it's like doing a crossword puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, there's an answer. Mm-hmm. You just don't know what it is or how. Or you can sit and stare at it for days. You put it down, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you go, "That's the nine letter word for Egyptian snake or whatever." <laughs> you know, whatever the, the thing is, yeah. it, it's like that, and it's it, it's all it's all encompassing. It's twenty four hours a day. But that's the passionate part. Absolutely, it is. And, and you're very passionate about that. And, and I wanted to make a point of that because uh, there is that misconception about, you know, do what you love and then and then success will come from that. And you do love the process of solving and building a business from scratch as right. opposed to, I want to sell DVDs uh, yeah. on, on the internet. And What's so exciting about that time, at the time I was at university, I was like first year university, so internet was very, very new to me as well. The email was very, very new to me as well. But I'd love to know, how do you look at those opportunities and really see the value in that moment as opposed to just thinking that it's just a passing opportunity, if that makes sense? Because these things are still happening. Maybe maybe the internet that's completely changed the world. Like, will we ever get that again? Who knows? Maybe another thousand years. But how do people find those opportunities and really take advantage of them? Oh, they're, they're everywhere. And to think that that was a once-in-a-lifetime thing is absolutely incorrect. There is things happening right now, and it's happening so much faster. The whole world's being turned upside down. There is opportunities under every rock. I'm not a person who says... Uh, Pla- movie reference, plastics, yeah. like from The Graduate. <laughs> but you look at, if you just open your eyes, you can see the opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I was happened to be at the right place at the right time for the internet, for the early days of the internet. Yeah, that's right. And more particularly for the early days of e-commerce. So because I had had 20 years of direct marketing experience, I did see something in the internet that solved all these problems that I'd been wrestling with for 20 years. So I was in the right place at the right time for having to have the background and experience It maybe recognize that what the internet could do for this old category. Yes, and that's not there anymore. Now, e-commerce is 20 years old and you can't go, I've got an idea, I'm gonna sell X on the internet. That is That game is over times a thousand. Yeah. But, there's a million other things. Think about the, uh, as little as like 10 years ago, you know, all of a sudden the, the, the crossover point happened between phones and desktop. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was a lad at, at internet, at, with Netflix, it was, the internet was only available on a computer. Yeah. 
not on your watch, not on your phone. And so those opportunities presented themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're still happening that way as things get faster and more ubiquitous. Right now, the only place you really can get the internet for the most part is on your phone or your watch or your computer and barely in your car, but certainly not right now in your refrigerator, certainly not in your stove, certainly not in your clock radio. I mean, mm-hmm. to think that those things aren't going to present the exact same opportunities I had. Absolutely. I have a, one of the companies I work with does, um, has a, it's a robotics company. And this person had experience in robotics and she saw that two things were happening, that computer vision, the ability for a camera to recognize what was happening cleverly um, was making a huge advance. And more importantly, the cost of a robotic arm was about to drop tenfold. So she was in the right place at the right time for combining this background with opportunity. But this is a long way of saying that they're always happening, Mm -hmm. always. But, and this comes forth in the book, you can't wait until it's fully formed and developed before you bet on it. Yeah, that's right. That's the key. I mean, when we bet on <clears throat> DVD, there it was in test market. Mm-hmm. We had no idea whether DVD would work. We had no idea whether DVD would go the way of the laser disc, which got to, I don't know, seven or eight percent household penetration and then stopped, or be like the VHS, which got to 98%. Mm-hmm. And if it had gotten to the seven or eight percent, I wouldn't be sitting here talking about Netflix, or if I'd be sitting here, we'd be talking about personalized shampoo or something yes like that's that. right <laughs> and uh and as you were saying um as well like with the dvd at the time there was about a five or six year lifetime for that before it became digital as right. well but that still didn't stop you from progressing with your idea and looking to you know become you know the leading force when it comes to um dvd rentals and purchases yeah. originally you did really well with purchases um people buying dvds online and yeah. you really struggled to get the success that you were looking for in terms of the rental market so how many things did you test and how when did you realize okay well this is a solution and how long did that take for you to solve the problem? So we probably tested six or 7,000 different things. I mean, I, I mean, that's a little bit of exaggeration, but not much. You know, in some ways, the, one of the myths you try and dispel with the book is that Netflix somehow instantly popped into our heads fully formed. That in these car rides I was describing mm-hmm. before, that one of the ideas was let's do a global international streaming service and let's brainstorm. <laughs> should we do orange is the new black first or should we do house of cards? No. Um, things go in directions you have no way of expecting. And what you start with it bears no resemblance to where you end up. And that is part of a startup. Yes. And that's the big problem is that people get this idea in their head and they want to figure out whether it's right. And they never take the step to figure out Let's do something and collide it with reality, yeah. like we did with mailing the disc to ourselves. But that, that, all it means is that when we launched, we had this idea that we would do DVD rental by mail, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Everything was different about it. I mean, for one, is that no one was renting from us. Number two is that at the beginning, we not only rented the DVDs, we also sold them because at the time there was no DVDs available. So we said we may as well sell them. So the second unexpected thing that happened is that that ended up being the business. I mean, we were doing 98% of our revenue from selling DVDs. And that was actually bad. It was because 
Amazon was selling books mm-hmm. only, if mm-hmm. you can remember a time like that. I do, yeah. And we knew that it was only a matter of time before they were going to start selling DVDs mm-hmm. too. And then everyone would sell DVDs and then we'd be out of business. Mm-hmm. So we were in this weird situation where all of our revenue was coming from selling. The thing we wanted to do was renting. Nobody was renting. And worse, doing both at the same time was making everything harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, we couldn't focus on the rental. It was confusing to begin with, but it was really confusing when you had to have an order process, which had to do both. When your reporting was confusing, when your warehousing was confusing. So we go, we have to pick one of these things and go all in. Mm-hmm. And that was the tricky decision, which is which of those things do you go all in on? That's you know, right, because you don't want to lose that cash flow, which is yeah. going to help you grow the business. But if you do spread yourself, you're not going to be able to really create that success that you want to no, as well. What you have to do is say, I want to get, have my very, very best shot at success yeah. by focusing everything and obsessively mm-hmm. on the one or two things that are critical. So in this case, we did have the courage to say, it is better to take a long shot at a big potential business, which was mm-hmm. rental, mm-hmm. than it is to take the easy way, which eventually is going to be obsolete. And so we, in one single day, we just basically turned the switch and walked away entirely from selling DVDs, gave that business to Amazon mm-hmm. and said, uh, we're out. But now, of course, it's like now we're desperate because now we have no money coming in, but which is a good way to be focused. It now is. we have to get the rental it right. It forces that creativity yeah. as well because you literally have no other choice but to figure it out. Yeah. And you, so you you applied the membership model, which again was really ahead of its time. A year and a half later. A year and a half later, yeah, because you were trying all these different yeah, things and it, trying to solve the problem. It was terrible. I mean, everything was broken. Yeah. Nothing worked. Nobody would rent from us twice. And I mean, again, it was not one of those things that in the brainstorming in the car, we said, maybe we should try this create, which foolishly, looking back, I'm going, why didn't I do subscription? Yes. I mean, I had all this experience with subscription businesses. <laughs> it's it actually ne- very but true. But it never yes. occurred to me to apply it to, uh, to rental. It was really more of a desperate desperation that we yeah. were running out of time and were willing to try even more crazy things. And yeah. in this case, it was because for the people who don't have any clue what I'm talking about, because they think it's always been streaming, as you hopefully gathered by now, it was <laughs> mailing movies to people in an envelope. A physical DVD. Physical DVD yes. in a little red envelope. Yep. And they had a due dates and late fees. So a week later, they had to put it back in the little envelope and mail it back to us, <laughs> which we thought was great, but customers thought was terrible. <laughs> um, but we eventually began building that business up uh, not in a way that was economically sustainable, but we were had a lot of customers who were we were losing money on. But we had this huge warehouse with hundreds of thousands of DVDs in it, and it occurred to us that it was silly that we were storing all these DVDs here where they were of no use, and we wondered is there some way that we could store them with the customers? You know, maybe we do peer to peer, where when they're done with it, we say, oh, your friend. Mary mm-hmm. down the block could use it. That was kind of interesting. That might have worked. And then we said, no, let's just let them keep them as long as they want. And when they're done, they'll mail them back to us and we'll automatically replace it with another. But that required them to come to the website to tell us what they wanted next. And since people are so easily distractible, we know that wouldn't happen. 
So the second idea was let's have them make a big list in advance of all the movies they want to see. So when a movie comes in, boom, out goes the next one automatically. And then the real other insight was why charge them each time? Let's just make it a monthly fee mm-hmm. and they can rent as often as they want. Yeah. And amazingly enough, when we combined all three of those things, no due dates, no late fees, keep them as long as you want, yeah. automatic list and subscription, that was that was the magic. Absolutely. But it took us year and a half. Yeah. It took us hundreds upon hundreds of failed tests to stumble into the one that ultimately worked. And then even then, it was a temporary measure. And you really were very good at really understanding the analytics and the numbers behind all of this testing, because I think that really helped you also guide you toward, you know, which way you wanted to go. One of the questions I really would love to ask is, you know, we're so lucky these days, we can jump onto Squarespace and just get a template and basically set up a business within hours if we really wanted to, if we knew our market and the clarity of the business and the vision. When you were creating your website, I think it was in 97 or? 97, 98. 97, What cost was involved and how did you even know where to start? Part of the solving the problem was that because as you correctly point out, there was no cloud. There were no of these web services where you could say, I think I want a website and I want to do this and this and have it be all instantly ready to go. Just plug in your product. If you wanted a website in 1997, you had to build it yourself. You had to write the software that would deliver a website. If you wanted the e-commerce component, you had to build all that yourself. You had to integrate it with a backend. You had to buy a backend. You had to have your own servers, literally, your own boxes in your own shelf, which you wired up yourself. I mean, it was incredibly time, money, and uh, labor intensive. So in our case, that original check that Reed wrote was for $1.9 million. And we probably spent half of it uh, just getting through the first six months, which is how long it took us to build a simple e-commerce website. So um, half a million dollars to set up your first website. A million website. dollars. Uh, a million dollars, excuse yeah. me, to set up your first website. Yeah. And we can just basically pay, what, $200 now just to get a or template. First 30 days free, probably. <laughs> first 30 days for free, exactly. For the, uh, the, the poorly featured, mo- yeah, it's amazing. It really the, is. The thing is, that's fan- it's a fantastic development, which is, it's because it's reduced. See, in our case, this was a fairly big idea, which was to rent video by mail. And it took us six months to experiment, to find out if it would work. And because it took six months and a million dollars, we did have to think pretty hard about, is this really a good idea or not? Yes. <laughs> um, and after six months, we found out that it was not a good idea, but we'd already spent a million dollars getting to that point. So we were kind of already committed to keep on going to figure it out. But now, because you can build your own website and configure it in a couple minutes, the barrier between idea and testing it is so zero, so mm. minimal. Mm. There's no reason people can't try things. Absolutely. I mean, you could try a thousand different ideas in the time that it took us to try one. That is the fantastic and exciting thing. Yeah, it really is. And, and you're, you're now mentoring a lot of um, startups, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I'm sure that there are people already 
thinking of all these questions in their mind when it comes to starting up a business and wanting to say reach out to somebody like yourself. For you, what is a standout when it comes to somebody that's pitching their idea? Is it the person? Is it the idea? Is it the fact that they have been, that they've created the research and really looked into the idea? Like what is it that um, makes you want to invest in that person and that idea? Well, the idea doesn't count for anything in my, in my mind. If someone comes in, I have this idea, that is completely useless because every idea is bad. I mean, seriously. I've never heard an idea which was the right thing eventually. Yeah. Never. So the idea is just a starting point. Mm-hmm. So the real quick answer is when, I, when someone's pitching me either to work with them or pitching me to invest, I don't really care what the idea is. It's almost entirely the person. What I want when they say, I have this great idea, and then I want to be able to say, how do you know it's a great idea? And I want to hear how they have figured out it's already a great idea. Okay. And if they say, well, I did some research, abstract research, then that doesn't count for anything either. If they said, oh, here's what I did. I figured out this way that I could test this by doing this, and I learned this, and I changed to this, and, and it's not sustainable or repeatable, but I know that this premise is true. That's what I want to see. Mm-hmm. And because of the thing we talked about a moment ago, the fact that you can get online for almost no money and no time means you can do it in your bedroom and you can do it after work and you can do it in the morning before your job and you can do it between um, when your kids get dropped off and pick them up. You can do it now. There's no reason that someone would ever come to you and saying, I need money to test my idea. Well, bullshit. You, you don't. What do you think the biggest misconceptions are around uh, startup businesses at the moment? That is a glamorous <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> Um, you really have to be in it for the wrong reasons. So and I'll give you a, a story about that. Is that my oldest son, well, all my kids, you know, they see me and the life that I have, which is pretty good because startups have been very, very good to me. But that was not why I did it. But if certainly they, there's a certain evidence of survivor bias in me. And so it's scary sometimes that when they look at me, they think, that's what being a entrepreneur is like. So in some ways it was scary when my oldest son, when he was in his third year of university was saying, I think I'd like to do a startup when I graduate. And on one hand I'm going, well, that's kind of really cool because (laughs) that has been the most fulfilling career for me I can think of and how cool if he finds that as fulfilling. But at the same time, I was terrified he might be doing it because he sees what I do and thinks that's what it's like. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, but if you're going to do this, you need to first uh, be an intern, do a summer internship um, at a startup, but not at like a Facebook or a Google or an Airbnb, Mm because those are not startups. Mm -hmm. Those are corporations. We'll find a CEO, a startup CEO, And where you can work for him or her and see firsthand what that person really does all day. And we found this amazing person, this four-person company. And so my son got to sit right there every day, come into work and watch what actually happened and the grind of it, but also the problem solving of it. And the fact that you'd grind for three or four days on something until you learned it worked or didn't work, then you'd change Mm -hmm. and do something else. And at the end of the summer, he goes, that was really, really cool. I loved that. Then I knew, okay, 
that he really, really he loved it for the it. process. Mm. Not because he saw this person doing anything other than working very, very hard mm-hmm. at things which superficially would appear very boring to somebody. So I don't remember the, the specific question, but it was it was more it was about um, what's the just the misconception difficult misconception yeah. about a startup, and that mm. that is one. You know, my, the other thing I, story I can tell about this is that I did a lot of work. Two of my children went to the same university. And so I did a lot of work with the entrepreneurship program at that school. And it turns out my brother, who also went to that school, he's now an investment banker. And so he would come back to the school to recruit. And the two of us, would, my brother and I, would joke that we were fighting for people's souls. <laughs> that he was trying to convince them to go into the life of finance. And, and I was trying to convince them to move to San Francisco and live six people in an apartment and eat ramen. Um, so he was definitely better armed than I was in this battle for souls. But you're trying to find the person who wants it. And the people who are on this track to become bankers because they go, well, that's a nice, comfortable lifestyle, mm-hmm. or it'll make my parents happy, or I think I want to be wealthy. That's not going to satisfy them for very long. That want, do you think that's a, something that's uh, within that person, or is that something that you can teach someone? You can absolutely teach them that. But again, it's exposing them to what it really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, not, not everyone's cut out for this. I'm, I'll be the first to admit that. You know, I know a lot of people who, when they were seven years old, they go, I want to be a vet. And you kind of roll your eyes. But lo and behold, for 10 years, they're obsessed with animals and <laughs> they get to become a veterinarian. Yeah. And I go, that doesn't, that person shouldn't be an entrepreneur. They should be a veterinarian. Yeah. And some people really love finance and they should be bankers. But some people love problem solving and they love working with a team and they love facing the unknown mm-hmm. and they love playing the what if And those people should be entrepreneurs. So what's within you is if you truly want that Mm -hmm. and you truly think that is something that is compelling to you, there's absolutely no reason you can't do that. You may not become wealthy. You may not get to be on Shark Tank. You may not Mm -hmm. get to fly in the private jet and all the things you think it's like. But you will get to come to work every day and sit around the table with really smart people Mm -hmm. and get to solve really interesting problems. And if that's what is a passion for you, anybody could do that and do well. When uh, Netflix listed, and I remember the story, you had your son with you. That same son, by the way. Yeah, the same, Logan, is that correct? So what was that moment like for you when you knew that you didn't have to work again? What did that feel like? So it was a very strange out-of-body experience because we were, we had just come downstairs from the trading floor at the bank, which had listed us. And it was very exciting. And in some ways, an anticlimax because nothing really changed. We'd been working for that moment for years. And it's not the reason you do it. But it is an important thing because it is some of the reason that a lot of people bet on you. Hmm. I mean, a lot of people did put in those employees, for example, put in those long hours and agreed to be paid below market because they would share in the success. And you do owe it to them to provide this liquidity. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the people who invested in you, the early ones, the angel investors, my read, my mother, um, friends that I'd gone to, 
they were investing in you at the beginning because they did. They wanted to see you succeed. But once you begin taking in real, real money from the venture community, they're not doing that because they like you and want to give you a shot. Mm. They want their money back times 10. Mm-hmm. And so you owe it to them to do this. So you're working for this IPO, even though personally that wasn't the motivation. But then it comes and you go, wow, I'm, I'm almost instantly wealthy. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder, how does your life change? And I remember we were sitting in the taxi, driving away, looking out the window at in New York City sidewalks, all the people walking by and going, this is really strange because... Yesterday, I was like them, working. And now, if I don't want to, I don't have to, Mm. which is a very weird thing. But on the other hand, I knew that it would be six months before the lockup comes off, where you're actually allowed to sell shares. So I go, I'm going to go back tomorrow. I'm going to probably go back to the office before I even go home. Yes. (laughs) So in some ways, my life hasn't changed. Mm. And I just didn't know whether I should feel differently or not. But you know, instead of going out to a big celebratory dinner, I, I took my son to get, he'd never had New York style pizza, which <laughs> with my apologies to Melbourne and to the rest of Australia, there's no pizza in the world like New York City. Uh, <laughs> that's pizza. what I've heard too. Yeah. And, and I think that's also um, attributes to your real love for the, you know, really what it's uh, the behind the scenes, behind running a business, the challenges, the problem solving, because for you, the money was great. It was an idealistic thing to actually go through. But going back to that normal grind, it really says a lot about, you know, who you are. And I love that. So in in Silicon Valley, I know a lot of people who've made a tremendous amount of money and hundreds, if not thousands of people who could stop work if they wanted to. Mm. And by my estimation, 10% do, maybe less. Yeah. And it's because what success is, is not money. Mm. And success is not now I get to play golf all day. Mm-hmm. Success is getting to do the things that you love, right. that you're good at, that make you whole. And for most of these people who were successful in startups, they're getting to do what they love, which is come in and solve these cool problems. The money doesn't change that. They get to keep on doing it. That's beautiful. Uh, and that's, that's the wonderful thing about it. And when did you leave Netflix? I left Netflix in 2003. You know, it's a perfect segue from what I just said about this definition of success. You know, and I was fortunate enough to learn relatively early, you know, in my 30s, what I loved doing and what I was good at. You asked before, what I dream of being when I grew up, and I had no idea. <laughs> but all of a sudden, when I was in my 30s, I go, I love doing this. I love this startup world. And I also learned that I'm, actually pretty good at it, that I have this weird set of skills which would be totally useless in almost any other context, but suit themselves to this thing. And that's what I loved. And once Netflix went public and once Netflix had the financial resources and once Netflix had this sense of scale and was hiring people who were way smarter than I was, I still loved the company but I realized I didn't necessarily love what I was doing every day. Mm. The problems I was solving weren't my own problems. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me slowly that I didn't have to, Mm -hmm. that I had the flexibility, that if what really made me whole was early stage stuff, that I should be doing early stage stuff. Was there any sadness or any emotion behind that where you felt like you were really just 
maybe feeling even a little bit disconnected from that? But- Certainly. I mean, you know, people go, do you regret leaving Netflix? And as a drop of regret, of course, it'd be so fascinating to still be there because the problems Netflix are solving are still unbelievably fascinating and complex. But I set that against the other 931 and a half amazing things that I've had in my life now because I uh, am not working at Netflix. Mm -hmm. So on the whole, I'm unbelievably fortunate Mm -hmm. that I do get to every day, or almost every day, get to sit around the table with really smart people solving really hard problems. So I get to fulfill that piece of it. I now get to spend time on the two, on the nonprofit um, companies that are changing the world in different ways. And I get to invest in that. I get to spend way more time with my family, even when I was paying a lot of attention to it at, as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. But now I have a much more, even better balance. And the biggest thing is that I get to, um, well, I'm not sure I can use the term, feed the rat, <laughs> which is what I call that. And not, not, I didn't coin that term. It's from a British climber. But it's that passion, that need to get yeah. out and do something crazy and hard. Yeah. And I had a sub, that's the one piece of my life I had a sub, sub Submerge, yes. sub something <laughs> um, for many years because you, you know, I had time for two things really, and one was family and one was work. And yeah. now I'm back to having the whole balance. So, in other words, do I regret it? Not for a second. Are there mm-hmm. pieces of it that be fun to do? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was? The, what do you think is the one thing that has really helped you create the life that you have today? Oh, making it a priority. You don't get what you don't try to get. And so you've got to set these goals for yourself. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's that old, in some way silly analogy with the big rocks that if you're filling the jar and you don't put it, you put the sand in first, you'll never fit the big rocks in later. So you got to do the big rocks first. So at the very beginning, even way before Netflix, I had resolved that I was not going to be the type of entrepreneur that was on their sixth company, but also on their sixth life. Mm. That that was a priority was to have a strong relationship with my best friend. And especially then when I had kids, to be the person who knew my kids and had my kids know me. And even more important, and those people who have kids will understand this, you're trying to figure out how do I have my kids have a happy and fulfilling life. And my wife and I decided that the best possible way to do that is not to tell them what to do, but to model for them what that means. Mm-hmm. And what it means is when you come home from work, that you talk about your job, there's glee and joy. Mm-hmm. Rather than coming home and going, oh, God, what a grind, and my boss is such a jerk. And that's how you model for your family So your kids grow up and seeing work as being a great thing Mm -hmm. where you're fulfilled rather than this thing, which is this obligation you have to go through. So the long answer is it's what gave me what I have now is on purpose. And I'm not model. It's this, you know, I've I've worked very hard at the things I'm passionate about. And I was lucky enough that things I'm passionate about actually paid very well. So I do have economic freedom now, mm-hmm. but that's not one of the things I planned for. And it's not yeah. one of the things that was important to me. Mm-hmm. And it's not one of the things that fundamentally will make me happier or unhappier. Your life adjusts to those things. The things that make you happier or unhappy is doing fulfilling work mm-hmm. and having connections with people. And from the very beginning, I said, those are the two things that I uh, 
want to build my life around. And just a couple more questions. You love problem solving and challenges and solving challenges. Where does somebody start to start solving a problem? Well, everyone has problems. And if you don't, I want to know what your formula is. (laughs) But part of it is you're training yourself to see problems. In my opinion, it's the easiest way to come up with an idea is to train yourself to see the world as an imperfect place. But then here's the big thing. You're going to see a problem and you, you can't help it. An idea will pop in your head that maybe I could solve it this way. And then here's the step. You have to do something about it right away. Mm-hmm. You can't leave it in your head. You can't embellish this thing into this castle of ornate with turrets and gargoyles. You've got to take the idea and immediately be clever and creative and say, how can I try it tomorrow? What can I do to get a first reading about whether this is actually a good thing or a bad thing? Okay. Um, that's how you do it. Start. You don't start. That. You don't finish. If you wait until your shirt's going to work, you're too late. The cleverness today is not how good your idea is. The cleverness today is how well you can figure out a quick way to test it. I love that. And my last question for today is the mission for my podcast is that I I really do believe that our potential is limitless and that we can be whoever we want to be and construct that within ourselves. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we live in an incredible time. So I'd love to know what your definition of limitless potential is and if you can share that with my audience. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope that you picked up from our discussion I really believe anybody can do the things that I did, that I'm, I do have a set of skills that not everyone might have, but that's okay. Everyone has a different set of things. And what makes success is doing the things you're good at and you like, and it's, it's identifying those things. Mm-hmm. And to think that you don't have them in my, is patently false. At Netflix, just for example, but also the previous companies that I built, you find people who have these talents and you find them a role that they can exercise them. And that's business, but it happens in life too. And uh, I I really, I mean, I'm completely with you that um, there's no reason that everyone can't be doing things that are completely fulfilling to them. You can't, if you say, I want to invent a CAT scan machine and you have no medical training, you might be, have the wrong aspiration. You have to scale your aspirations to your abilities. But once you find that, they'll almost always be able to accomplish more than you think you can. Thank you so much, Mark. And I highly recommend Mark's book. It's such a good read. Thank you. (laughs) It's such a good read. You're you're an incredible writer, a real storyteller, but there's so many nuggets of wisdom there around entrepreneurship. So thank you so much, Mark. It was an honor to have you today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. At Deconstructing Success, we have so many more incredible conversations for you to download, listen to, and share. Check out the links in the podcast description so that you can continue to learn, apply, and evolve. We would love for you to support the show. And you can do this by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or leaving a comment on your favorite platform. You can also share this episode with someone that you know who can benefit from listening to today's show. If you wish to connect with me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Just type in Tima Alhaj, send me a direct message, and let me know which episode you listen to. All of the links are in the podcast description. Your future success is waiting for you. Until next time, this is Tima.